episode 16 of season one of The Rigged Podcast. In today's episode, Ilias, Chris, and Jamie begin their review of the William H. Hinton Lab operations. They review several never-before-seen documents from the Inspector General's investigation into the lab, including bitter letters written by the people with inside information into the lab's operation that implicate high-level Department of Public Health officials who still work for the department. These people were responsible for ensuring all DPH labs were functional and they were never affected by the fallout from the drug lab scandal. All of that and more on this episode of Rigged. Enjoy. All right. So we are here, and today we are going to be discussing um, hidden lab operations and swig drug requirements, or uh, you know what was asserted as swig drug requirements, and also con- we're going to finish with contamination. So this, I think, this is going to be a long episode, but this is the first of multiple. So um, and uh, we, so we, so the Oedipus of or the origin of the material that we're reviewing currently. Uh, Chris, I think we've we've been over it, right? Uh, where we got this, this is uh, these are materials that were obtained by the uh, from the OIG as part of their investigation, right? So Mactel and the ACLU filed a suit in the or filed a motion in the Sutton case in order to get access to what was produced there, and uh, you know it's really sort of an astounding hearing uh, to watch because the judge in that case. The first thing he said was like, they're clearly right. They should have access to this evidence. Like defendants who are impacted should get this stuff. It's not even a hard question. Um, so it sort of went downhill for the OIG from there. But uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of a couple of weeks later, we actually got the documents, and it's over uh, four thousand pages of transcripts, about a thousand pages of other random documents and then a whole bunch of electronic files. Right. And so part of this, uh, part of the whole bunch of electronic files is uh, one letter that was received on September 14th, 2012. It was sent to uh, Dr. Judy Ann Bigby, the Secretary of Health and Human Services for the state of Massachusetts. Uh, At the time, she has been, she was since, uh, she left her position we don't know. They say resigned, but we don't know. But it says on September 14th, 2012, and it's from an anonymous uh, person. Dear Dr. Bigby, thank you for starting the removal of the cancers from within the DPH Bureau of the Lab Sciences and State Laboratory. Really comes out like not, like oh, holding the cards close to their uh, hand there, not really <laughs> revealing. Um, managers Han and Nasif have plagued us for many years. <laughs> and if you remember, that, that's referring to Linda Han and Julianne uh, Nasif, who were in char- supposed to be in charge of the lab. Uh, unfortunately, the drug lab misconduct demonstrated by Han and Nasif is only the tip of the iceberg of bad managers at the state lab. The laboratory culture personified by these persons is routinely practiced by the remaining lab division directors, Tracy Stills, microbiology, Sandra Smole, S-M-O-L-E, molecular and virology, and uh, Dina 
Caligliaro, QA, and IT. The lab's culture has denigrated to one of mismanagement of budgets, assets, and personnel, malfeasant lab operations, denial of responsibility for and knowledge of their division activities, no command of subject matter, <laughs> poor or um, avoidance of decision-making, poor organizational climate, empire building, no regard for teamwork, taking, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is, they're talking about a toxic environment. And um, I mean, this could be sour grapes. It's just that it, to me, this is, why would someone send this letter? Like if they had that, uh, like big of an ax to grind right when like Dukin was, this was after the, like right before the Dukin thing, like spilled all over the front page and um, everything kind of went down in flames. So, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. Script with um, where the OIG interviewed Dina and she was like, what is swig drug? <laughs> and she was the head of QA. <laughs> she was the head of QA. And yeah. she didn't even go into that lab. Like they didn't, they didn't even want to touch it. So they were, the, the lab to me was on an island and they were forced to come up with whatever kind of standards they could find. But anyway, so another subject for investigation, the letter goes on. Another subject for investigation is Grace Connolly, Commissioner Auerbach's handpicked senior DPH administrator at uh, Jamaica Plains since 2007. Working intimately with lab managers, Connolly aids and abets the malfeasance and misconduct of the division directors and the former lab director, Han. It was Han and underlined Ann Connolly who performed the initial 2007, or excuse me, 2011 internal investigation of the drug lab scandal. Uh, that was the investigation that was done by DPH after they found the, what they call breach of protocol um, at the lab. And also, was, was, would that include, you think, um, the internal investigation about the breach that they did? Chris? They did an investigation uh, into the June breach. And then, like, while that was happening, uh, other people at DPH found out that uh, Dukin had actually done the same thing, like, the month before, a couple months before, and they just sort of did not investigate that. Yeah. And so Con so that that investigation, Connolly's direct actions have been covered up by Auerbach. Connolly was Auerbach's chief negotiator for the drug lab transfer to the state police before her 2011 drug lab investigation discoveries. Yet Connolly failed to disclose the drug lab problems and cover them up. Connolly's guilt is equal to Han and Nasif. Connolly also assisted the lab di director and supports lab division directors with their bad acts against lab employees and mismanagement of personnel uh, positions and waste of material resources and funding. This includes her personal, personally fabricating events and at other times witnessing the lab director and division directors fabricate events and false statements to unjustly harass and, and formally discipline lab employees. Dr. Bigby, unless you investigate and intervene to finally address the lab's long-standing management problems, will never be the laboratory we, we should be, worthy of the public trust and a model employer for lab employees. Do these guys to this day handle COVID testing? I hope not. <laughs> they do. They well, I know it falls under DPH because JPNA was the was inundated uh, J, J, J Pina, the records guy for uh, the Department of Public Health was inundated with requests from 
um, people related to COVID. So I think these labs that they're talking about that are so horribly mismanaged are are handling our COVID testing, which is terrifying. Dr. Bigby, oh, okay. So in a recent press conference, you denounced a state police chemist for violating the public's trust. Dr. Bigby, please do not allow the DPH state lab division directors to continue to violate state lab employees and continue the downward spiral of the DPH state laboratory. Anonymous. And then right before, so that was the first letter. And then right before, um, again, to oh, back up, yep. so this is something that the OIG found. Yes. Discovered it, found it noteworthy enough to keep, and it's in their records. Right. And so, and they did this invest. The OIG was doing their investigation in 2013. Right. So, a lot of these um, materials the OIG has known about since 2013. And I mean, it's you know just a little bit of a context. So, this this first anonymous letter was written two days after Nasif was fired and Han resigned. Um, and and I believe there was even a, a press conference with um, Ms. Big B. Um, to to address those matters, so this is a very current letter, and uh, so it's not like something um, that you wouldn't know how to um, how to how to analyze it. You know exactly what's going on here. And second, there's a lot in this letter that suggests the the repeated use of division directors and lab to refer to the entire building mm-hmm. um, tells me that this is not necessary. Not not necessarily an insider of the of the of the drug lab. Uh, this could be another somebody in another um, uh, department. And what OIG did and what the Attorney General's office did was so compartmentalize the drug lab scandals that in the beginning it was just Annie Dukin, just at Hinton. Don't worry about the other labs at, at, at in Jamaica Plain, and don't worry about Amherst. Then it was well, it was fine. It was also Sonia Farak but don't worry about the rest of Amherst and don't worry about the rest of the entire state lab um, um, setup. Or the but, time Barrick was working at the HIV lab. Right. right. And, 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 and so we're told, and I could fish out refer- specific references, but we're told either through omission or through some affirmative statement that this thing has a natural limit. This, this crisis is sandboxed. Don't worry um, your pretty little heads. Uh, this doesn't get any bigger than than what we're telling you it is. And yet, there's an anonymous letter that tells you it, it it's probably bigger than <laughs> than you've been letting on. And to not mention it or even investigate who the author was or corroborate any even a, a single detail. So it's sort of funny how uh, you can just hide things and say there's nothing to see there. You know right. the. The absence of evidence must mean evidence of absence. And that's right. not how the world works. No. And it's like living in a dual reality. You don't know, like, if you, you never saw this stuff and you'd see only what the press was saying and what the OIG and the, um, and the DPH were saying at the time and the governor, like, this was all Andy Dukin. Like, <laughs> none of this stuff would ever see the light of day. And if, if it did, if they did do an investigation, at least they could have done a full investigation on this. We'll never know. You'll never know how, how deep it goes because they will never say it. They will never tell the truth. If the drug lab was sloppy, you know, what, what are we to, to, to suspect about the other, uh, uh, the other uh, arms of the lab? 
You know, you can right. walk across the hall into another section. How's that looking? Is it nice and tidy or is it also messy? I mean, right. Um, well, they say that all the other labs were accredited, but um, as we'll get into when we talk about Swig Drug and we talk about what, you know, the, the lab itself was holding itself up to for accreditation and being a legit scientific entity and lab, like um, accreditation is just a certificate ultimately. Like you, you do it, you, you jump through hoops, you get it. I've, I've been part of accreditation processes in the drug world. Well, but, but it's like, it, ultimately it comes down to the culture and the people who are running the tests and what their motives are. Okay. On accreditation, I think we've yet again swallowed a government meme um, without any evidence. Uh, and, and so the evidence that we've been told uh, about accreditation is, man, it was really expensive and we just didn't have the budget. But it wasn't a lot of money to get accreditation. And all the other labs had accreditation. They had the money. Um, the difference, though, is that the other labs accreditation doesn't interfere with the suppression of exculpatory evidence. The problem with the drug lab is if you get accreditation, suddenly you have to do things that are really annoying, like error reporting and error logging. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the minute you do that, and I think, you know, I I hope the listeners understand if they haven't already, the rigid seesaw that, that, is created when the government has to investigate itself. It has a duty to defendants to turn over exculpatory evidence. And the minute that a government actor commits malfeasance, that seesaw tips in favor of all the defendants whose rights might have been affected by that government actor. And you got to turn over all that evidence. So that means that the minute somebody said, hey, there's some fishy stuff going on in Jamaica Plain, you know, newsflash, the entire lab is exculpatory evidence. All these documents should have been turned over. Instead, they were hidden under OIG's umbrella of secrecy and then further hidden through all kinds of reports that told us there's nothing to see here. And so I think people need to understand that that the reason they never got accreditation is not because they didn't have the money, but because they didn't want to deal with the responsibilities that entailed. I mean, it's mind-blowing to me that they still let Dukin testify in cases after that breach happened. So they took her off the bench, but they still allowed her to put together discovery packets and then go into court and testify. Uh, All those defendants had no idea uh, what she had done and what other people in the lab knew she had done. Right. But here's the the, the thing about that, though, Chris, is she was still testing. And she was, even after that, they saw her testing and and, and going into computers and doing God knows what. And... And not only that, the the breach, we'll get into it when we talk about the June breach, but the June breach was something that happened that was, that had happened many times before. People had taken evidence out of the evidence office that weren't just Annie Dukin. Right. Put it this way. The June breach uh, on the, uh, on the ladder of severity was one of the uh, uh, less severe things that took place in that lab. There were many, way many worse things that ha- uh, took place on a routine basis. And yet it's funny, the June breach and, and then the, the subsequently discovered May breach, which is sort of amusing that you'd go back and discover things um, in reverse chronological order. Um, you know, those are not the worst things that happened in that lab. No. 
But but to Chris's point, even with the June breach, they didn't care. Like they, he, like you said, yeah, they were still. Te- he was still left. testifying. Like he, yeah. she was still out in court. Like nothing happened. Yeah, they they let her continue to test those ninety samples. Like finish up whatever she needed to do, and then go into court. <laughs> right. It was such a huge deal. Anyways. So here is the second letter that was received November 14th, 2012. I, I assume after, because it's to the OIG, it's to Inspector uh, General Kuna, Akuna Matata. We have, we have um, been informed, oh, dear Inspector General Kuna, we have been informed that you will be looking into the DPH state drug lab scandal and wish to provide you with information that may be of help. There has been much covering up by DPH officials who remain at the DPH state labs and not held accountable despite their duplicity in deliberate malfeasance before, during, and after the drug lab scandal was exposed. Number one, this is an itemized list, so you know it's from some sort of scientist or engineer. Number one, why the DPH stated the drug lab, or excuse me, why the DPH started the drug lab in the early 90s without standard practices such as the proper written procedures, no lab quality program, no standard lab uh, practices established, no accreditation or certification for the lab, minimal education credentials, employees who have no personal professional certification, no appropriate training program or continuing education, no testifying in court as to the test results, methods, procedures, until the last few years when a mass case went to the U.S. Supreme Court and then they had to testify. So right there, Elias, I think you made the point when we were going over this last night. I mean, we went over Melendez-Diaz. That's what they were referring to. I mean, that right there is why they were fighting, right? Yeah, they, they knew exactly what would happen if you started having these people show up in court and answer questions. Uh, and, and that's why they fought it. And that's why they made uh, what I consider to be misrepresentations of practices to uh, the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, uh, what's the date on this letter so that we have a little further context? November 14th, 2012. Okay. So I'll keep going if you want to uh, yeah. gather that. So number two, why wasn't the drug lab brought under compliance with the DPH state lab quality assurance program like all other labs have to be? See the attached chart of the DPH state lab divisions for each lab. I can read that after. Why in 2006 was Julie, uh, Julie Nasif, or when Julie Nasif took control of the drug lab under her analytical chemical chemistry division, did she not bring it under the DPH state labs quality assurance program or do a comprehensive review of the drug lab operations? Why didn't, and stop me anytime if you want to interject guys, Uh, why didn't NASIF's lab division director counterpart, Diana Calegliaro, uh, Diana, I don't know, swig drug Calegliaro division director of quality assurance initiate a quality program as she is responsible for doing and does for every other lab. Caligliaro is the primary QA official at the state lab, at the well, DPH I mean, like, state lab. Go ahead. The answer to their questions is it's essentially a mill. So uh, they have the police target poor people and then they try and prosecute them as cheaply as possible in order to extract fines and fees. <laughs> and uh, for, uh, for several years, it looks like it was profitable uh, and then eventually some statutes changed, changed and they weren't getting the same funding 
that they used to. And then they said, oh, shit. Right? <laughs> right. And this is, oh, shit. 2000 was, oh, shit. When, when did that all go down? When did they stop? So, like, 2002, 2003, they were getting very clear indications from independent auditing groups that they had to become uh, accredited. And they just didn't do it. And their quick fix, their $0 fix, was to just say they were doing the same things that accredited labs do and that they were following SWIGDRA. Right. And it couldn't be questioned. And also to make sure that, you know, they didn't testify in court as to their testing. They just gave people certificates, right? And said, this was tested. It's certified by our lab, which, right. is, which is, you know, a certified lab or whatever they said, follow SWIG drug. And they just gave them the piece of paper. So it was, it was like nearly impossible to get a judge to okay uh, getting a chemist to come in and testify before Melendez-Diaz. Right. Right. And now, so that was like pre, with the um, evidence files, that was pre, obviously, Melendez-Diaz, like you said. And it's, um, it, when you don't have, like, they, it was all a confidence game. When you don't have to show people like what it is that you're doing, you can just give them a piece of paper and tell them we're the state, we wouldn't lie about this. You know, right. their word means everything. And it still does to this day. That's that's what really the problem right. is. And, and, and I, I probably said it before, uh, but Melendez-Diaz changed the way the lab could do things sight unseen. And, and the minute that Melendez-Diaz came down, uh, it, was, it, it, it probably became obvious that you couldn't subject a single sample to multiple retests, that you couldn't have three uh, or four chemists handling the same sample. Um, and, and, and you also couldn't be bending uh, all of the rules that you may have been bending. And so as soon as Melendez-Diaz came down, I think the, the practices uh, became um, unsustainable. Uh, and that's why the wheels fell off the wagon uh, within uh, a few short years. I mean, I've said it a billion times, but that case is from this lab, right? It's right. no coincidence. No and, coincidence. And, and my, uh, if memory serves me, uh, Melendez-Diaz on retrial, Melendez-Diaz had been convicted and on retrial when lab, for whatever reason, the only difference on the second trial is uh, the main difference is that you had lab chemists testify. Uh, there was an acquittal. And if that's not itself the poster child for what this lab was desperately fighting against, um, you know, I don't know what is. All right. So it's, I'll just finish with a few more. Why did together Linda Hahn and Grace Connolly, Commissioner Arabach's personally appointed senior DBH official on the uh, Jamaica Plain campus since 2007 and personal advisor to Linda Hahn during her lab director time, perform the initial 2011 DPH lab quote unquote internal investigation of the drug lab chemist's alleged misconduct, yet only Hahn has been mentioned. Grace Connolly also attended the lab division director meeting since coming to Jamaica Plain in 2007 and knew about the drug lab's problems. Why did Grace Connolly fall to, uh, fail to disclose the internal investigation problems she and Han discovered to the state police? Also, it's not plausible given Connolly's relationship with Auerbach that she didn't tell him when Han and she finished their internal investigation. At least a year before the 2011 Connolly-Hahn internal investigation, Auerbach had appointed Connolly to personally manage all D DPH aspects 
and work directly with the state police to transfer the drug lab to the state police? Why didn't Connolly disclose this to the state police? Why is Connolly not being investigated for her role? Her guilt is equivalent to Han and Nasif. The drug lab scandal has tainted all the labs of the DPH, you know, all blah, 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 blah. We are hoping that you can get to the truth about all the DPH managers at the state lab directly involved who caused the drug lab scandal and are continuing their incompetent malfeasant management in the rest of the state labs. This is someone from inside the Hinton lab building, right? That's what it appears to be. It's gotta be, it's gotta be. It's so, it's, I mean, of course that's like, clearly they have a, they have a personal stake in it. Um, and it's either someone from within the Hinton lab itself or probably within that web of labs because they're more concerned about the taint. But they knew because they're on the same building, they knew like, why is this lab not audited? Like, why is this lab? Why do we have to go through all this stuff in this like lab in the corner is just like, you know, the redheaded stepchild. Like, why is that being allowed? And the yeah. answer is there. I mean, they were ashamed. Like and Peter Priero says that they weren't, they didn't have the same mission as the DPH. The DPH mission is to like find diseases, find, you know, potential threats from whatever and drug testing, you know, it, it, you're stretching it if you add drug testing to that mission. And well, they the knew. point I'm trying to make is it's not just like three random guys on a podcast saying there's an issue here. This is right. someone in the building saying like that there appears to be criminal misconduct potentially and clear mismanagement of a government lab. Yeah. Right. And I believe that would, and I believe that regardless of any wording uh, of uh, of any um, uh, assignment from the governor's office, um, OIG would 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 be empowered to investigate such allegations. And right. At a minimum, to try to figure out either corroborate any of these or figure out who was the author. And then to come out in their report in 2014 and call Duke and the lone bad actor after receiving this. And um, and just say it was all this, you know, one random chemist, too, who has a weird last name, like it was all her. It was no one else. And it was just the Hinton lab. And it was just for these years, which also happened to coincide with almost her entire tenure, a year, you know, prior to her coming on. Um, it's a good point to segue maybe into that internal OIG memo where they talk about potentially prosecuting people. Oh, yes. Do you have that? Yeah, I'll just uh, bring that up. So uh, one of the things that I thought was the most astounding out of anything that we found in the OIG's files, there's an internal memo that's talking about um, uh, potential federal crimes that Julianne Nasif and Charles Salemi uh, could have been prosecuted for. Um, in relation to the acquisition of federal funds. So they had two different problems going on. One, they were aware of Annie Dukin and her misconduct, and they had to report that. And then the other thing was they had to report that they were essentially complying with uh, generally accepted scientific practices. And so in order to do that, they were saying they were following swig drug, but uh, funnily enough, OIG investigators found emails between Nasif and Salemi where she's like, uh, as far as swig drug, uh, or, sorry, FYI, we're not actually following it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so I, I mean, they, it, it's incredible to me that it's 
It's a very detailed, fact-intensive memo where they go over the ways that these people could be charged, right? And then to come out with a report saying that Dukin was a sole bad actor at the lab, it, it, it's just mind-blowing. Right. And, and, and just to make the point clear, I think, about not following swig drug, because I think a lot of people might think, well, you know, it's like, you know, if you try to kick a field goal and you miss, you know, you tried, right? But the first rule of swig drug is you have to have written procedures and that swig drugs recommendations are not those written procedures. They don't count. Right. And yet they didn't have written procedures. So, so, the, so the analogy would be Lucy pulling the football away uh, before Charlie Brown kicks it. They never even... They never even got off the ground on following swig drug. Right. And the, yeah. the analogy I use, uh, Ilias, is it's like, and I used this with Chris before, it's like building a house, right? If you're, the lab is the house that you're trying to build and swig drug is part of that, swig drug is the skeleton of the house without, you know, walls, floors, or anything else. It's just the naked recommendations of the house. But the procedures and how you do things are the meat, are you know the roof and the floors and all of those things that's what covers the lab and makes it a com compliant lab but without it you're just you're, you're you have a few basic guidelines but you you're not enough to go with especially not enough to like deal with what they were dealing with with the amount of samples and stuff and i always want to be as precise as complete as possible so what we're talking about right now is bates number oig 021246 through OIG 021251. So that's the memo where they laid out grounds uh, for the director and the supervisor to be federally charged. And you want to you read from it? You want to read exactly what they said? Well, I, I quoted part of the emails before, but again, uh, one of the things that they note is on July 23rd, 2009, uh, NASIF states in an email to Salemi, FYI, we are not actually following all the 2008 scientific working group guidelines. And then he responds, quote, as far as SWIG drug, I believe we are meeting the recommended methods in all caps guidelines. We definitely don't meet things like continuing education, training, space requirements, paperwork tracking, etc. Did someone suggest that we are not complying? End of quote. So like... To get like what he's saying is like we use a GCMS and we also do um, the chemical reagent tests, uh, but like that's not all of SWIG drug, right? So there's a QA QC portion that you know is fairly important, <laughs> and that and that portion is usually segregated out, not within. Like these guys viewed QA and QC as part of their daily, each one's responsibility. And, and like each chemist's responsibility has QA option, like operations as part of what they do. But in a normal lab, QA is its own separate entity and does everything independent of what the manufacturing operations are doing because their goals are different than manufacturing goals at times. And you want those two things segregated because there's different agendas. And when you blur them, that's where you get into problems big time. Right. And you don't want QA and QC to know what the desired outcome of a test is. Right. So if you're trying to review a mass spec run, um, you don't care what the results should be. You just want to know, did these conform to our 
practices and um, is there uh, appropriate error reporting? Um, and, uh, and, and to have each person QC themselves uh, works about as well as it would sound. Yeah. <laughs> like, so the, the other thing I wanted to mention from this memo, they get into like financial fraud, right? So they stated in this uh, government grant application that they would hire a chemist, train a chemist internally, and then send a chemist to the DEA school, right? So that's what they said that they were using these federal funds for. And then it turns out they were using it almost entirely for overtime pay, right? So for like the other chemists in the lab. So I mean, like, I understand it was a financially strapped lab, but like when you're dealing with funds from the federal government, you have to be careful with that. Yeah, they have requirements. You can't just defraud them. And say, right. and we're talking specifically about the Coverdale grants that the labs were right. getting. Right. But that's that's what they were they were applying for these grants to get what supposedly to get additional chemists because of the influx of drug samples that they were receiving, and especially after Melendez Diaz, they needed all the help they can get. But what they used it for at times was just to pay themselves for OT, right, Chris? Right. I mean, like so again. To be precise, this is o, Bates number OIG 021247. And what I love about this, it's not just that they have a memo explaining how they committed fraud, but like there are handwritten notes and arrows and underlines and stuff like that about the most egregious things. Right. It, it, you know what? It's, it reminds me of Sonia Frock's car, right? <laughs> Where they found all the, all like basically her whole world of guilt. And, you know, she underlined newspaper articles from other, you know, state officials who were arrested for stealing steroids and other drugs, right? And I mean, like, the last thing I'm going to say about this document is it's amazing on uh, the second to last page, there's a, there's a notation that says this should have been a red flag to DPH executives. <laughs> And it was DPH executives who were talking to each other. Right. Oh. And just to, just to make it clear, though, because I think somebody might say, well, um, doesn't, you know, doesn't everybody lie on federal grant applications uh, or reporting uh, reports? Uh, and the answer is, um, they're, they're, if the government detects lies, they routinely uh, prosecute and they routinely claw back money. That is, in and of itself, an entire body of law and a cottage industry for lawyers um, on all sides. Um, And uh, so grant fraud is a big deal. Um, I I was going to say they include the relevant statute in the memo, right? (laughs) So So what I'm going to, we're going to go over, go ahead. Just 18 U.S.C. Section 1101. All right. So, but again, it's not a crime if you commit it, uh, you know, as part of a massive government cover-up that they don't want anyone knowing about. Now, presented, so I'm going to read uh, directly from the OIG materials. They did their investigation in November, from October uh, they, they interviewed people, all members of the Hinton Lab from October and November of 2013. We figured that 
there aren't any audio recordings of these people that, that we know of. The attorney general's office has told us that there are not. I don't believe it, but regardless, the OIG interviewed all of the people from that lab, and we are going to hear what they said about a number of different subjects about how the general lab operated. So I'm, I'll just read you what the OIG had on this report. Presented in, is a highlighted um, is a highlighted of or focused review of statements made in response to questions posed by Audrey Mark to 11 chemists formerly employed at the Drug Analysis Laboratory, DAL, of the Hinton Institute, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts. The interviews occurred over several week period in October and November of 2013. The term highlighted represents an effort to extract statements, those that seemed especially significant to understand issues like how the lab operated, the, fo uh, the forces acting upon or in con or constraints against the against which the laboratory responded, and those that appear to involve either common responses among chemists or those of a common theme. All right, so I'll just go through the first section. I'll go through is general lab operations. So it says in two thousand and one, R. Temperini put in a place. Um, put in place a model of three or four chemists in each room of the drug lab uh, with a team leader to loosely speaking review their work. That's Charles Salemi that said that. There existed room supervisors for DF, which is Della Francesca. It was Charles Salemi. There was no peer review, just room supervisors to which to direct questions. Room supervisors were mentors or sages, not overseers. At various times, Betsy Robb, Della Saunders, and Michael Lawler were room supervisors to uh, Della Francesca. Peter Prior supervised Dan Rosowski and Nicole Medina. Uh, okay, so Charles Salemi states that the drug lab had a preliminary testing program where they would do color, crystal, or GC only and issue a preliminary finding. An ADA could have the evidence recalled for a full analysis if the case was going to trial. Uh, these are just you know, general lab things. There was no real supervision of casework until one year before the Mass State Police were due to take over the drug lab. <laughs> the, the drug lab went many years without personnel evaluations. There were not many union issues at the drug lab and the police could submit found drugs to the drug lab and ask for them to be analyzed. Um, so Peter Prio believes that Julianne Nasif was responsible for QA of the drug lab, though he is not positive. Dr. H. George had been responsible for QA of the Hinton Institute and Mary Gilchrist decided to decentralize the QA functions to the individual laboratories. With the decentralization, there were no longer routine QA meetings. Um, Della Saunders did all the timesheets and would give them to Julianne Nasif. The monthly case number statistic could be accessed from a drug. We don't need to know that. Information printed on the back of control cards changed due to drug lab policy changes. After 2010, all runs had to be noted on the back of control cards. There was no guidance on crossouts on control cards. So basically anyone could put anything on a control card and screw it up and then just white it out and say, you know, it was actually this. There was no, nothing kind of governing documentation. There was a policy change that every run of the GCMS had to be documented on the back of a control card. Um, Dan Ronkowski was tenacious in following this policy. 
Uh, Charles Salemi could have assigned cases, but he generally did not. He liked for chemists to work the kinds of cases that they preferred. I'm sure Sonia loved that. As a former supervisor, I certainly relate to the many benefits of this approach. Oh, that's just a random. A second chemist was required to check the math of anyone doing a trafficking case. A senior chemist, according to Dan Rinkowski, was expected to check trafficking cases of subordinates. Uh, for various reasons, chemists in the past were removed or removed themselves from using the GCMS. This included uh, Gao, uh, Della Fr Francesca, Michael Lawler, and Marine Tur Tang, MT. Um, Betsy Robb requested in 2005 and 2006 to have herself, uh, Betsy, uh, right. excuse me, yeah, uh, requested in 2005 to 2006 to have herself removed from the GCMS work. Can, can I just throw a penalty flag uh, yes. on Mr. Renchkowski's uh, claim, uh, fastidious claim that uh, all runs were documented? Uh, my client's case, and, and, and people may have forgotten, but my client was uh, factually innocent, but yet through um, happenstance, the lab certified that what he had was uh, cocaine when it wasn't, and he spent almost two years in prison. Uh, Renchkowski was the secondary chemist who uh, um, ran allegedly the, uh, the 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 only GCMS run noted on the back of the control card, but there were in fact uh, two runs, as well as a third uh, by the standalone GC, uh, and he certainly knew about the 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 uh, the, the earlier GCMS run. So I would say that um, uh, I, I would I'd be skeptical of anybody claiming what was done um, fastidiously without first looking at all the control cards and, and, and matching them up. And, and I don't know that the OIG ever actually did that. All right. So here's, here's something about Ilias about the two chemist systems. So for a majority of its history, the drug lab followed a two chemist system. In the 80s and early 90s, the drug lab used the IR to confirm it was a one chemist system. Um, MT... Uh, how do you pronounce her name again? Do you guys know? Is it Marie? My Tan. My Tan. My Tan. Says that it was also always a two chemist system, and she had been there since the eighties. So there's disagreement there. Following the memo from Doctor George in two thousand four, where he ostensibly implements a two chemist system, it appears that this format may have been partially in place. For expedited cases with Charles Slemmy approval, a case could be analyzed entirely by one chemist. There were expectations uh, to the two chem. Uh, there were ex expectations to the two chemist scheme. For specialty items like steroids, it was okay for one chemist to take all the samples all the way through the process. That was part one of the investigation of the Hinton Drug Lab. Join us for the next episode where we will be discussing more bad actors at the Hinton Lab. As always, thanks for listening. And people, subscribe, review, and tell your friends.